You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 8th of January 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up... It's not forming a new trade deal, it's picking apart the old ones and actually making, you know, making something that's not going to be a dog's breakfast of the new one. The EU chief, Ursula von der Leyen, comes to London to negotiate the bloc and the UK's future relationship. Will it be a harmonious one? My guests, Terry Stiasny and Stephen Diel, will discuss that and the day's other news, including why is Russia's Vladimir Putin in Damascus and what can we learn from Justin Trudeau's new beard? Plus... The notion of giving up alcohol for a month after a period of revelry may seem a noble and healthy one, but is it really? The merits of laying off the sauce. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle's House View starts now. And a very warm welcome to today's programme. Joining me in the studio are Terry Stiasny, the political journalist and author, and Stephen Diel, the Russia analyst. The UK has warned the EU that their future relationship will not be based on alignment, but on a much looser structure. It's a pretty clear opening salvo on the day Britain's Prime Minister meets the new EC President Ursula von der Leyen. Terry, let's begin with you. How significant is today's meeting? Yes, I think this uh, meeting is obviously going to set the tone for the negotiations that are still to come during the course of the year. Uh, we got a sort of interesting split-screen moment, I suppose, in, in London today. On the one hand, you have Ursula von der Leyen speaking uh, at the LSE, setting out her vision of how the future relationship may or may not work, about how the negotiation prospects could work and what is what's realistic to achieve within the timetable that Boris Johnson has said he won't change in the year. At the same time, of course, you've got the theatre of Prime Minister's questions, the first one, Boris Johnson back in Westminster, where he's obviously going to face questions exactly about this. And it'll be interesting to see how his rhetoric, whether he's still, you know, using the slogan that got him re-elected uh, in December of get Brexit done and whether he's still absolutely insistent on this timetable that it all has to be wrapped up uh, by the end of the year. We'll get to that tricky timetable in just a moment. But Stephen, I mean, the, the words coming from um, Frau von der Leyen were very, very clear. She said the nature of the relationship between friends and partners very, very loaded words, will inevitably have to change. And it is a generational issue. This is not something that can be sorted out easily. This is something that will fundamentally change the relationship for decades to come. Absolutely. And, you know, the fact, the fact is, whatever happens, um, there's, there's only a sort of a 20-mile um, English Channel between Britain and the continent of Europe. It's you know. quite a big 20 miles for some. Well, for some it's quite big, for others... Myself included, it's um, you know you get on the train in half an hour, you're through the tunnel and you're there, and 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 I want to be a part of you. I'm, I'm kind of in denial over this whole thing. I have to admit, um, uh, but apparently it is going to happen. Um, but the, what what frightens me about it, you know, it's it's a divorce basically. Now these two partners have been married for 47 years. You know, I, I'm old enough to remember when they went in, you know, in 1973, and then had a referendum in 75. Shall we stay in? Yes. Um, uh, so, just you know, let's take it as, as two people. If you have a divorce that's that's going on after two people being together for forty-seven years, there's going to be an awful lot of sorting out to do. You know, it's not just the house and the belongings. There's there's all sorts of things. And this idea 
that you know putting a timetable and saying right well we're we're coming out 31st of uh, of January is is the you know that's that's the date and then 11 months later 31st December we're going to be out everything's going to be in order it just it's just unrealistic it's just bonkers um trade deals take a lot of time to sort out and when you're not only it's not it's not forming a new trade deal it's picking apart the old ones and actually making you know making something that's not going to be a dog's breakfast of the new ones and this is something that Ursula von der Leyen has said in the last couple of hours she said she probably didn't say dog's breakfast but um <laughs> she might have meant no it. that was um Oh, the Greek financier, what's his name? We'll come to that and I'll, I'll remember that in a second. But uh, no, she's said, uh, von der Leyen has said that a comprehensive UK-EU trade deal by the end of 2020 is impossible. Some are saying that that's an issue of semantics. The former Chancellor, um, uh, George Osborne, said earlier on today that it was that actually a bare bones trade deal is fine. What you do is you set out your structure by the end of the year and then various sectors such as for example the motoring industry which will want closer alignment with EU regulations will will sort of work it out a little bit later on is that possible well, I think it's it's very interesting that this is what people seem to be suggesting today, that you can do this bit by bit, chunk by chunk. I mean, to continue Stephen's divorce analogy, it's like trying to have a divorce and say, OK, we've decided he's got the car, we've decided he's got the house, but we haven't yet decided how we're going to split the bank account. So by saying we'll deal with financial services later on, yes, maybe you could do that and maybe you could have a deal that doesn't set that up. But it's going to cause huge problems for, say, the financial services industry in Britain, which is obviously one of Britain's, you know, big contributions and, and you know, big sectors. Um, so, yes, it seems very unlikely they will get something that is comprehensive. It may make the cliff edge less steep, as people talk about it at the end of, at the end of this year, that you can say, well, and, you know, we've, we've sorted out the car industry, we may have sorted it. But if you haven't sorted out big areas like the city, like Northern Ireland, um, and like lots of other issues, uh, there are still going to be problems for people in, involved in those areas. And tell us a little bit more, um, Stephen, about the issue of uh, this timetable, this clock that ticks. The European Union is extremely good at the five minutes to midnight way of working. It likes to make a clock tick right until the end and some are suggesting that the, the, the threat, the promise, the pledge by Boris Johnson to get everything done and dusted by the end of December actually will work against the United Kingdom given the fact that the EU can just sit back and wait. It can and I think the, the, the factor which stands out for me um, and I think is being ignored is you know the, this is, they're talking in very abstract terms about you know they're talking about sex of the economy and so on what it comes down to is people and people often are driven by emotion um, and if on the EU side in particular they decide for whatever reason for for envy, for anger, for, 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 for normal human emotions, actually, no, we're not going to help you with this. Um, then Britain does look, you know, it could, could end up in a situation where it's, it's looking very foolish, where um, people don't, you know, in certain businesses, don't know which way to turn, don't know uh, how they're going to conduct their business. You know, look, look at the fact that when um, uh, the Conservative Party, the, the previous government, was planning uh, the, for what they thought was going to be an earlier Brexit, 
and they decided to um, they would we'd need more ferries and they went and picked a ferry company that didn't even have ferries um, you know the the mistakes the human errors that can be made along the way plus the human emotions I think are not being considered and I think they could be very very important it is very much trade focused isn't it Terry but um, I mean just looking at some of the questions that Ursula von der Leyen had to field from students um, at her press conference a little while ago she was asked what the security arrangements would be like after Brexit and her response was the UK will be a third country after Brexit which means that it won't be allowed to be involved in agencies such as the European Defence Agency but she then said that these rules are being reviewed and one wonders whether this review area is something that Britain is trying to bank on whether it will say well actually yes okay in principle we leave but in practice let's make sure that we still we cherry pick which was the great forbidden expression in the in the original negotiations yes i mean i think this one of the suggestions uh from the british government at the moment is that they're going to keep trying boris johnson has this phrase that he reuses you know our friends in the rest of europe and you can see that when there's a crisis for instance like now with iran that britain is still trying to uh, form some kind of new relationship. They are still obviously talking to France and talking to Germany about that. And Ursula von der Leyen is, I think, relatively open to that. She is, of course, a former German defence secretary. She spent a lot of time in the States. She realises that, you know, those strategic interests uh, will still exist. The question is, if Britain is not automatically in the room where these issues are discussed, obviously they're still in NATO and, and so on, you know, how do you elbow your way into a particular room and say, well, we want to be in that room, but we don't necessarily want to be in the other one you know, those structures do matter and you know no matter the personal relationship it's quite difficult to rebuild those from scratch this has been one of the, my hobby horses i've been on ever since the referendum um in fact even before the referendum when it was taking place i, I fell out in a big way with a friend um because i said look it's about security he said no 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 nato's about security i said look why do you think there's not been a major war in europe since 1945 because we actually all sit around the same table and talk and you know we're, we we can discuss things together we're going to be excluded from those discussions now and and i think that, that that is very worrying. Yes, th- th- you know, no one wants a war in Europe, but if you're not taking part in discussions um, and you're relying on a second-hand account, then you don't have your input and things can go wrong. Stephen DL and Terry Stiasny, many thanks for joining us in the studio. We'll be back in just a moment, but first, here's Monocle's Yolene Goffin with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thanks, Emma. Iran has carried out a ballistic missile attack on air bases housing U.S. forces in Iraq. The attacks, which were in retaliation for the assassination of the Iranian commander Qasem Soleimani, hit air bases in Erbil and Al-Assad. It is unclear whether there have been any casualties. Officials say Ukrainian Boeing 737 has crashed in Iran. It's thought that all 170 people on board the flight have been killed. The Ukraine International Airlines plane crashed just after takeoff from the Iranian capital Tehran. It is not known whether the incident is linked to the confrontation between Iran and the US. And today's Monocle Minute reports on CES, the world's largest electronic show in Las Vegas. Among the draws at this year's event has been a tiny fire engine, which is powered entirely by battery and is designed for narrow urban streets. For more on this story, head to monocle.com minute. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Emma. Thanks, Yolene. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson, here with Stephen Diel and Terry Stiasny. If you've just tuned in, a very warm welcome to today's programme. The Russian president, Vladimir Putin, landed in Damascus yesterday for an unannounced Christmas visit. Mr Putin met his Syrian counterpart, Bashar al-Assad, at a Russian military base in the Syrian capital. 
Stephen, what's he doing there? Not just wishing a happy Christmas to the troops, surely? Well, of all the um, the fallout from the um, killing of General Soleimani last week by the Americans on Friday, uh, of all the fallout that's happened, this part of the story has surprised me least. Um, what Putin loves is confusion, trouble. He loves causing it, but also he loves to be the one. This, this, this to my mind, was, was just a classic Putin stepping in and saying, look, you know, the, the, the region's in turmoil again. We don't know what Iran's going to do. We don't know what else the Americans can do. But look, you know, we've been backing Bashar al-Assad for, um, for the last five years now, nearly five years since 2015. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, we're, we're still together. You know, he can rely on us. He loves to be seen as the, the not, not the peacemaker, but the, the, the focal point, the key figure in all this. Um, it's been one of the reasons why he got involved in the first place. Um, he hasn't quite used the phrase make Russia great again, but that's been very much his agenda for the last 20 years since he became president for the first time. Um, and this idea, the Middle East in particular, and you know, let, let's try and look at it from a Russian point of view. You know, If you look at a map of the world from Moscow, it looks very different from the way it looks from Washington or London. Um, and the Middle East is, you know, it's not, it's kind of on Russia's southern border. Um, so Russia does have genuine interest, always has had genuine strategic interest there. But um, in Cold War times, it was very much a question of the Cold War writ small, with the Americans backing the Israelis, the Russians backing the Arabs. Now, that's, it's not as clear as that anymore, um, apart from the fact that a third of the population of Israel are, are from the former Soviet Union. Um, but one of Putin's aims has always been to get that influence back again. And he, he, he doesn't care how chaotic it is. That suits him. Um, uh, and so, as I say, it didn't surprise me at all to learn that he was flying in for a quick chat, even though it's only the second time since the um, Syrian revolution started uh, it, that he's actually visited. It has very much cemented Russia's position in that region, hasn't it? I mean, as soon as the Iranian general was killed, I think many of us just went, what's Moscow going to say? Yes, I, I think you know it's there's a continuity here. I mean, as Stephen points out, exactly the, the friendship between you know what was the Soviet Union and Syria goes back to Assad's father. That was an area where they built very close relationships over a long period of time. So actually, if you look at it in a bigger historical and, and geographical perspective, yeah, as as Stephen says, this is this is not at all surprising that that Russia seeks to you know to have that influence and to say you know we have this sort of stability. It's quite interesting looking at the symbolism of the meeting between the two leaders. They're lighting a, a Christmas candle together in an Orthodox church and they are they also went on to, to go to a mosque. So I think they're trying to suggest that, you know, Russia Russia can be friends with all these different groups within within the region. What's much more complicated now is of course that you're not dealing with just one a state that is a functioning state. You're dealing with an area where everybody else has interests, where you've got, you know, different, you know, Kurds, other groups, all all still fighting. Uh, and and uh, President Putin is off to Turkey tomorrow to talk to, to Erdogan. And we, as we saw with Donald Trump's conversations with him, the role of Turkey as well is going to be, you know, increasingly important if you've got these two big regional powers trying to play it out. It is quite something, isn't it, that when a a large a large event of great significance happens in one place in Iraq. How many world leaders do you see getting on a plane and openly going somewhere to make some sort of big gesture? You never see it with any other leader other arguably than Vladimir Putin. 
No, because as I say, he loves that chaos. I mean, it, it sounds it sounds extraordinary, perhaps, but but he does. You know, he he has set himself against the Western world in a bigger sense. So you know, he's doing it to show his support for Syria, but he's also doing it to to thumb his nose at, at the United States. There's obviously his personal relationship with Trump is uh, interesting, and um, I think over the years, particularly if Trump isn't re-elected, I think more and more might come out about um, the the past. But but he's you know he is he is saying, look, you know, the Americans have kind of lost it, you know. Uh, I, I, I'm, I, I'm the one who's in charge. Here. Exactly. It's interesting. You said the point. You made the point. It's it's his chaos. I mean, it doesn't. Say, it almost does the exact opposite, doesn't it? It has one figure who comes in and takes control. It's exactly what he did when Obama hesitated as to whether involved get himself involved in the Syrian conflict. Russia wrote to the rescue at the absolute last minute. He did, but it's it, he appears sort of to to. to bring some calm to the chaos but in fact it doesn't bring calm at all because the americans are now thinking well we had these missile strikes you know what are we going to do that oh and suddenly the you know it's, it's the position is complicated in fact by putin wading in as well um so he's he's very good at making these gestures which cost him little or nothing in terms of uh, prestige or in terms of money even um and yet they get other people worrying because the americans will be worried now uh, that you know, this is something they've already got. This you know that they have various views on what Trump has done by killing the general. But they've now not only thinking, well, you know, how is Iran going to react? Is Iraq going to react? And now they're thinking, now what? You know, what else is Russia going to do? You know, he's really put another spoke in that wheel. Conversely, though, we have the European Union. We have Ursula von der Leyen in a huge speech from a couple of hours ago, saying that they will spare no effort to keep the Iranian nuclear deal intact. There is this group, the European group, which is still trying to add its voice to keeping everything under control. Well, yes, I think, and obviously we don't know at this stage what is going... We see, obviously, the very public statements, the public visits. We One of the interesting things about the Soleimani case is when you look back at profiles of him before his death about how many back channels there were between all the different sides. And, you know, what we obviously don't know at the moment is who is talking to whom behind the scenes to try to keep the situation under control. And I think at the moment that is probably more important than the public bravado and the public, you know, shows of shows of strength, you know, to try and keep those channels of, of discussion open at some level. Finally, can you be taken seriously as an effective world leader and sport a beard? That's the latest challenge for the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who appears to have given his razor a rest over the Christmas break. A picture's been released showing a pensive Mr Trudeau showing off a neat covering of salt and pepper hair along his jawline. So is Mr Trudeau's beard a hit, or do politicians fall into the same category as newsreaders and caterers, for whom facial hair is very much a no-no? A clean-shaven Stephen D.L., your thoughts on the uh, the Trudeau picture, suggesting that he's he's gone a bit road down, hasn't he? He's he has. I mean, he's you know he's um, he's being very modern. I would say, um, which I acknowledge, I am not. Um, I don't mind. A, you know, if someone if, if a guy wants to have a beard have a beard. What what I really hate these days is kind of just a few days growth. It just looks scruffy. And I and I'm actually one of, I am one of those who thinks, no, you know, politicians Goodness knows, goodness knows they've, they've lost enough respect as it is in many countries, particularly this one, um, in recent years. Um, but, you know, they can at least look respectable. Um, and, uh, you know, a guy with four or five days growth on his chin... 
to my mind, simply look scruffy. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe, ladies, you tell me, you know, maybe they look terribly sexy or something. I don't know. In which case, maybe I shouldn't be so clean shaven. But, um, you know, to my mind, it's We'll just... ask Mrs. DL about that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what are your thoughts? Scruffy or sexy or a man in uh, control? I think it's a man who's still on holiday. I have a friend of mine who's a lawyer who I saw uh, the Friday before um, going back to work on Monday and everyone was remarking at a party on his on his Christmas holiday beard and everyone was like, oh, is this a new look? And he said, oh, no, no, it's going on Monday morning. That's, that was his sign that he was relaxing and on holiday and on you know Monday morning when it was back to work, the beard would be would be absolutely gone. <laughs> so Justin Trudeau has obviously decided, maybe I like it, maybe he's got a, a rash, I don't know. I think he, it's, it's just a laid back. Blackness, which, uh, you know, I'm not sure. Maybe it's a good thing. Maybe ah, we need no, people to take now it Now, some people are saying that it doesn't look laid back. It actually looks... Uh, some people have said it looks serious, mature, established. Uh, why is it, Stephen, that sporting a beard can be one of the most radical things that a man can do to his appearance? I think because there's not a lot that we can do um, in so much as... Uh, yeah, you know, we can wear a colourful tie or no tie or, you know, um, a man wearing a sort of very floral shirt will probably be laughed at. Um, you know, if we're thinking, certainly if we're thinking in the world of work, be it business, be it politics, whatever, um, you know, men's clothing is fairly dull, conservative, you know, perhaps a grey suit, um, maybe if you're being really bold, a pinstripe suit. Um, you know, I'm not being totally factuous. If you think women have much more... Um, flexibility in this they can wear various colors they can wear dress they can wear trouser suit they can you know that they they can change their appearance as it were much more easily than men so one thing men can do is grow a beard or allow you know grow some facial hair um i think it's interesting for example that the the movember movement um to, to for prostate cancer one of the things they you know they demonstrate is men grow a mustache um for you know, to raise money for charity, um, the, I think it's just you know, it is that there are very few things that we blokes can do to um, to change our appearance, and particularly you know, those of us who like myself don't have much hair on our heads anyway. And finally, I mean, we we see now Justin Trudeau whether he will keep the beard is something that indeed the world's media will follow incredibly closely. But is it a sign that? this traditional garb that Stephen has been talking about actually might not be quite as rigorous in the world of politics and, and, and PR anymore. I mean, we need to look at Dominic Cummings, who's the, the, yeah. um, the, the Prime Minister's special advisor. I mean, he looks as if he's just about to go out and do the garden every day. But, and he's yeah. done that deliberately, some people yeah. say. I think, it, I think it, I was about to say that. Um, there's a whole, you know, in the tech world, you know, your Steve Jobs uniform polo neck or looking scruffy, wearing your T-shirt, looking anti-establishment. It's it's a way of saying, I don't care about the rules. I, I break the rules. I make my own rules. And I think that's, if Dominic Cummings is, is going for a look and not just pulling things out of the laundry basket, that's what he's going for. He's saying, I don't care about your rules. Uh, so that's, you know, it, it's sort of a uniform of in a way itself. I'd also point out that women don't get to do it. All that you, we, Women can wear different things, but if Ursula von der Leyen or Theresa May had turned up without their hair washed and, and just in their old jeans and an old jumper, they'd say, no makeup on. They'd say she's completely lost it. She must be having a breakdown or something. They would not say she's looking scruffy and casual and smart. They'd say she's she's not in control of the situation. Terry Stiasny and Stephen Diel, thank you very much indeed for joining us in the studio. In a moment on Monocle 24, we hear a little bit about the benefits of a dry January. There are some, I've been told. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first-ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, 
there's the Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, a Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in the Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson. Finally today, if you're still feeling as if you slightly overdid things during the Christmas and New Year holidays, well, you're not alone. The number of those taking part in the so-called Dry January movement has swelled in recent years, as have the number of brands offering alcohol-free alternatives far more sophisticated than the average soda. Monocle's culture editor, Chiara Rimella, now explains. Since I went on the wagon, I certain drink is a major crime we are only one week into 2020 but already even some of the most ardent advocates of a dry january have fallen for the appeal of a glass of wine if this is you then not to worry the notion of giving up alcohol for a month after a period of revelry may seem a noble and healthy one but is it really It's definitely not for many French citizens, including President Emmanuel Macron, who nixed a proposal this year for a public campaign over January to limit alcohol consumption. His move was swiftly endorsed by a grateful wine sector that does not want to see its sales drop, especially during a tough year of trade spats and tariffs. Make it another old-fashioned plea. Dry January is maybe best aimed at countries with binge drinking problems. But I am from Italy, where we generally take the time to enjoy a glass of something delicious. So why should we have to suffer along with the boozy Brits and the beery Nordic folk? Especially as January is a dark, difficult month in the Northern Hemisphere and getting together around a table for dinner with friends, with the joy of a bottle, just the one, is a tonic for the soul. Punishing yourself never really works. It's time for a gentler approach and a glass of something heartwarming. Leave out the bitters. Just make it straight right. Many thanks, Kiara. And that's all we have time for today's programme. Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and Louis Allen. Coming up at 20 hundred, a brand new edition of The Entrepreneurs with Daniel Bache. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>